Thanks for tuning in to Mindful Voices, conversations you want to hear, brought to you by Applied Mindfulness Training. In each episode, host Michael Carroll, author of Awake at Work and founder of The Wisdom Seat, sits down with a different guest to connect for an open, honest, and curious conversation about how they've applied mindfulness in their work and in their everyday life. Today's guest, Dr. Michael Bain, is a clinical associate professor at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine and founder of the Penn Program for Mindfulness. Founded in 1992, the program was designed to help patients with serious health conditions cope with the stress, pain, and losses associated with illness. Now open to anyone, the program has trained more than 10,000 people in mindfulness-based stress management. Now here's your host, Michael Carroll. Welcome, Michael, and thank you for getting on this podcast with us. And uh, frankly, I've been looking forward to this conversation for some time, so I I appreciate your time and your interest in this. Um, So welcome. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation, and I've been looking forward to it, too. It's great to hear from you. It is the most interesting topic, I think, if you ask me, and I'm happy to explore it with you. Great. Thank you. So I'll just give a little context why, from my vantage point, you know, as long time meditators, you and I have been practicing for quite some time. And, you know, part of being a meditator, one can get the impression that the meditation practice is the central element of our path, so to speak, of what we're trying to do in our lives. And to some degree, that's true. It's a, it's a fundamental gesture, a very profound one. But, you know, what I've come to learn, and that's what the whole notion of applied mindfulness is about, is the key is not so much the very active meditation, it's the post-meditation. It's the expression of the practice in everyday life. And, you know, I've found over the many years of doing this practice that that just becomes truer and truer and truer about how does this practice really influence how to live our lives as human beings. And, um, you know, there are many of us out there, practitioners uh, who are doing many things, but I have to say, and this isn't blowing smoke per se, you know, what you've been doing, you know, for the, I guess what, it's 30 years now, is very impressive in terms of bringing this practice alive uh, for so many people in, in, in the venue that you create at the University of Pennsylvania. And, you um, you know, I was reading over your website prior to coming here and having this chat, and there's a couple of quotes on there that, that struck, struck me about your mission is, you know, how is this, quote, practice relevant to modern life? Uh, quote, how does it meet the real needs of our culture and our world? This, and that, that, that strikes right at the very heart of, of what we're trying to do with applied mindfulness. So I'll throw you the ball. You know, I mean, you've been doing this for... 30 years, you know, over well over 10,000 people that you've touched, you and your team. And I, I'm just curious, what's it been like, this 30 years of hard work for you? It's been wild. Um, you know, I started our mindfulness program uh, back before anybody had heard about mindfulness wasn't on anybody's radar. It was a really uh, weird thing to do. And I became the local weirdo at the <laughs> University of Pennsylvania. People would roll their eyes at me. Um, 
but I did other things that justified my existence there. So the mindfulness program was allowed uh, to remain. I, I wasn't paid to do it. I did it in my spare time. And most of the people who were referred to us uh, came from doctors, often because they had something that was completely untreatable, uh, a terminal illness that had to be faced, chronic pain that had to be lived with, or something that felt broken inside, a depression or a sadness or a fear um, that had to be held kindly. And uh, those people loved it and found that it made a fundamental difference in the way that they lived. But that was a long time before uh, it became popular. Nobody was more surprised than me when suddenly people became interested in what I did. Uh, it was actually great. So uh, at the time I was practicing medicine. I was the head of a, a division of general internal medicine at a University of Pennsylvania hospital. And um, uh, it, it let me actually expand the program. And so actually at this point now, the number of people who we've trained in an eight week program that's similar to mindfulness-based stress reduction is probably 25,000. Um, yeah, it's a lot of people. It's a lot of years also. Yeah. Um, and over that time span, I've come to see, and lots of people have come to see that mindfulness really addresses one of the challenges that we face in life every day, which, which is the need to connect more with the natural world, with the people that we care for and love, with what matters most to us, with our personal mission, our need to connect with those things and, and how difficult it is to connect with those things when we're trying to manage all of the other tasks and and things that need to happen it's yeah. it's really difficult so mindfulness helps that well you know you know as you may recall i was very fortunate to have attended one of your programs uh you actually taught it if you may recall and uh you know this, there's much that struck me about the program but one of one of them was the intimacy of the dialogue I, I was very taken by where people were willing to go. Obviously, there's the sitting meditation and good instruction. People were trained on how to do it, and they did it consistently throughout the week. And then we would come to this meeting with you and your staff, and we would get into conversations, and people were invited to you know, talk about their lives. And I was very powerfully struck about the intimacy and the risks that people were willing to take in expressing their their lives in those settings. And I, I also, I'll be very honest with you, I was like, it's like, I don't know if I could handle these kinds of conversations. It reminds me of like Pema's when you go to the Pema's conversations are like powerful around her, the people who come to her programs. Tell me a little bit about that intimacy that you, your, your program seems to invite people to consider in their path? That's a really great question. And it's, it's funny that right before I uh, started this conversation with you, I was talking to a student who uh, was asking the same thing, uh, a student who was doing some research with us. And when 
when that class that you took goes well, like when there is a, a feeling of, um, of trust that happens among the group, it, it's no longer a class. It's not uh, someone who has the answers teaching people who want to get the answers. It, it becomes uh, simply an exploration of what it means to be a human being and what we can do within ourselves and between one another to actually allow us to heal, yeah. uh, how we can take care of ourselves. And when people see that, when people feel that, when it becomes real in a classroom, uh, everybody's orientation changes. It isn't so much about sharing what you wouldn't disclose, uh, but it's about looking more closely at the way that we're all the same. Different stories, sure, we all have different stories. You know, this is hard for me and it's not hard for you and vice versa. But the most fundamental situation that we have this life that's fleeting and, and tender and beautiful uh, and includes suffering, disappointment, loss and pain, like that fundamental truth is something that everybody resonates with. And in, a, in a, an eight week class, you have enough time to let everybody express the way that that's true for them. And, and if, as I said, if it goes well, uh, everyone else in the group resonates with that and holds it in some kind of a shared space, something really amazing happens. Yeah. And, people heal in a really deep way. Yeah, I was very impressed with it. Uh, and as I said, I, to be honest, it was like scary territory, you know, the, 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 not scary bad, but a level of exposure. Uh, and, and, I, and I felt like you and your staff really know how to guide people through it, you know, like uh, skillfully. You know, I, I was very impressed with it. But let me, let me probe in here a little more. You said, you know, this sense of loss or sadness or being wounded or life is difficult. And uh, the, everyone goes through that. You know, I, I'm going to push back there a little bit. You know, I, I still bump into this dynamic, as I'm sure you do, but let's see if you do. There's a lot, the, the tone in modern materialism is these, these missteps are somehow a mistake. Like they shouldn't, be really happening and spending time meditating about how to get to know them is kind of even a further waste of time. You know, life is about extra cheese on your pizza, man. Come on. Life is about, you know, getting down there and swimming and playing baseball, watching TV. And, and I, I'm glad that some people, Michael, like going to your, your little situation. If it helps them, God bless. It's not really what life's about. You know, that kind of ingrained modern cynicism toward these types of authentic opening to who we are as human beings. You, I assume you still bump into it. And if you do, how do you, how do you engage it? Wow, that's a great question. I mean, I have two answers and I'll, I'll, uh, I won't go on with them for too long. Um, one of them is that the path of of learning meditation, the path that happens uh, has different stages. And there's one stage at the beginning where the only thing that you're trying to do is 
to be able to sit evenly with your mind as you watch it hop around from thought to thought into the past and then into the future. Uh, so there's a kind of stability that happens as a result, uh, mostly of meditation practice, but also of the attitude that you take as you begin to realize that that jumping around isn't optional, that it's not gonna go away just because you crossed your legs and closed your eyes or took a posture, uh, that it comes with the territory. And, and then you relax with it enough to actually find a, a peace within it, to actually let it be and find peace there. Then there's a second stage that lasts decades for most people, not to say that you, know, you need to wait for it to finish before you move on, these things all happen together. But this second period that I think is inevitable is that um, people work with the things that have been difficult for them or with the things that have hurt them or uh, come to an understanding of how to hold disappointment and challenge. And, and in our culture, this sort of, uh, this whole sort of area has been the provenance of psychotherapy, really. And I think that uh, inevitably, the way that mindfulness works uh, has some facets of it that are similar to the way that psychotherapy works. People meet what doesn't feel good and, and hold it and through that process, which takes strength and courage and uh, confidence and, and also a willingness to stay with it, uh, through that process, something heals. And then the third category uh, or the third, the third uh, stage that people go through is um, something that for lack of a better word, I would call spiritual. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because that was what interested me in it first when I was a kid. And then I found myself going through <laughs> the other stages. Um, but uh, the way that people connect with a more deeply felt sense of meaning and purpose, the way that people connect with uh, the hearts that other people have and their vulnerabilities and their protective barriers, uh, the way that we connect with the natural world uh, and, and actually live within it instead of being perched on top of it. That, that, uh, and, and that stage goes on for as long as you have. Right. <laughs> funny. I like that. Perched on top of it uh, instead of being in it. Well, you know, thank you. Uh, this, this, this resistance to just sitting still, uh, just being here a big deal. It, it does continue on in our culture. You know, for me in business settings, the fun part has been, I, I don't do this as much now, I don't lecture as much, but the, uh, when working with leaders, I, I don't bring up mindfulness, you know, you know, I don't, I don't inflict it on people. But at some point, what happens with leaders is they realize that the challenges they have when she's running a big business or, 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 or maybe a data scientist team or whatever, is less about the content of what they're doing and more about the humanity of what they're doing. 
Mm-hmm. That ultimately, the leader's challenge is how to work with people, how to deal with conflict, how to build confidence, how to make a decision that impacts diverse people in such a way that maximizes the advantage of the situation. We could go on and on and on. And all of those dynamics has to do with the mind, not with some technical business issue. And coming to the conclusion that the mind is the major tool you're bringing to the, to the challenge for leaders is, is something that they can naturally come to if you just give a little time, you know what I mean? But boy, you know, there's so many cynics and skeptics. How many CFOs have looked at their watch when I'm sitting around talking about this stuff? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. It's a common, it's a common, and to some degree, it's an understandable resistance. You know, let's sit still for an extended period of time when you have a lot of things to do. You know, and I I kind of appreciate why there's resistance. Um, Okay, well, let's move on a little bit. Uh, Thank you for that, Michael. Uh, So one of the areas where you've had some impact is you've worked with diverse types of people. I know that just from being in your program, but I know that you run programs specifically for health professionals, physicians, nurses, healthcare professionals. And we've had chats in the past about this and it's an area of interest of yours. And you have some uh, particular skill in that area, obviously being a physician yourself. Tell us a little bit about how, from an applied mindfulness point of view, how, how, how do healthcare professionals, you know, use this practice in deepening the, their, their mission of, of, of helping others and being, being good, you know, uh, medical professionals? It's a boy. That's a really interesting topic. You know, you're hitting all the topics that interest me. And I can say something about leadership too, because I do teach leadership uh, uh, probably as often as I teach to healthcare professionals now. But, um, you know, medicine is such an interesting field because it's highly technical and technological now and more and more. And, and actually, the whole profession is challenged by its dependence on um, on technology and on uh, an electronic medical record, the extent to which uh, that takes physicians or caregivers in general away from the actual content with the person who they're hoping to heal uh, in, in lots of different ways. Uh, and, and that feels like a loss. Uh, but there, there's something about that profession, which is also true, I'd say, about authentic leadership that um, has the quality of a calling to it. And so you might go to medical school, you might you know, go to business school uh, to make a lot of money, and that's possible. But you also might go to make a difference. And, and then whatever it is that you are are doing professionally, your professional responsibilities become just another means through which you can be helpful and make a difference to other people. Uh, and, And so in medicine, the challenge that caregivers face is that there's so many things that get in the way of their authentic contact with their patients that, um, 
you know, when I started practicing medicine, I, um, I had half an hour to see a patient. Wow. That hasn't happened for a long, long time. And uh, I took notes on paper. And while I was writing my notes, I could maintain eye contact with the individual. And um, sort of towards the end of my time practicing medicine, and it was actually one of the reasons why I had to stop practicing medicine, uh, what I, uh, I was given an electronic medical record. And the first time that I walked into the office where you know, I was supposed to meet a patient and work with this electronic computer-based program that I had been trained in, uh, I knew I was in trouble because the way that the keyboard and the screen were set up required me to turn my back to the patient while I was taking information. Now that, that was that was early in the game, and I think it, it's better now. I don't know how I was supposed to do that, like have you know the eyes in the back of my head, maybe. But it's kind of a, a symbolic, I think, of um, you know how technology takes us out of contact with others, and so, and and also the incredible demand and the number of things that physicians have to do. Are, are, are really overwhelming. It's so intense. It's so uh, overwhelming. And, um, you know, everybody who I know now who is in the practice of medicine uh, goes home after the working day, has dinner with their family, and then sits down for a satisfying meeting with their computer so that they can finish the charting and the record work that they had. And they, you know, my wife, who's a primary care internist, spends a couple of hours each day after work doing that. So what mindfulness has to offer uh, is a way to step out of all of that busyness, all of that distance and all of that technology to just stop one's mind, even briefly, and actually look and really feel and, and feel the vulnerability of that person who uh, is coming to you because they're in pain or afraid. I mean, physicians forget what it's like, you know, that that person who's lying under a really foolish looking paper gown and who is naked underneath that uh, is really uncomfortable. And you're about to pull the gown up and look at their nakedness and assess it in a technical kind of a way. And that's really, really uncomfortable. And you know, you're going to listen to their heart and their lungs and do whatever else you have to do. And while that's going on, um, you know, you're planning <laughs> what intervention you'll do or trying to make a diagnosis, your thought process is going. And um, you know, and then if you have time at the end of the visit, maybe you'll have a, a a brief period, maybe 15 or 20 seconds to ask them really, how is it going? And, and what mindfulness offers practitioners is the opportunity to step out of that, to learn to stop and pay attention. Because after all, that's what mindfulness is about, paying attention. And when you begin to make contact with individuals in a way that they can feel, you become uh, more real to them. And your presence as somebody who cares is actually healing. And when, when they feel that, uh, something happens.
And the relationship is really different. And that contact and what happens as a consequence uh, has something to do with the calling of medicine, which isn't about applying technology, but is about holding people in vulnerability, in face of uh, pain and suffering, and letting them know that there's someone walking alongside them. Who cares? You know, I, I think you may have, uh, I may have read it somewhere, you told me this, I forget, but there was like average amount of time a physician has with a patient is like what, two and a half, three minutes or some, some crazy number. And there's some research indicated that to the degree to which the patient feels literally heard and listened to is the degree to which they're likely to follow an instruction. Mm -hmm. And as we all know, following instruction is key, taking your medicine, doing whatever, you know. Uh, did you quote that to me or did I read that somewhere else? Or am I, I making it up? <laughs> you might be making it up. I don't know. It's longer than two or three minutes, but it's not long enough. Right. Um, you know, but this kind of connection with another person actually doesn't take a lot of time. Right. Because we're talking about attention. We're not talking about duration. And um, if you are able to practice what you've learned from the formal meditation practice of mindfulness, if you're able to do that in contact with another person, then um, you don't need all day. Right. People right. are exquisitely sensitive to that kind of contact. I mean, you know, when uh, one of the things that we teach, and I teach a course uh, in the medical school, a full semester, full credit course on mindfulness, and the most important thing that we teach is um, not about practicing meditation, but it's about using mindfulness in communication, in contact with another person. That's what really changes people's lives. That's if you don't, cool. it's really cool because we see the changes happen and we hear from our students about it. I mean, this course, uh, it started as a course that was just in the medical school. And then some students in other schools found out that they could register in it and it, it's just been flooded. And actually the students in the business school, uh, are, they are, they're able to register for courses earlier than the medical students. And anyway, they sign up for things right away. So we had a year where it was so full of business school students that we couldn't get medical students in. Um, and in fact, uh, we still have more uh, students from Wharton, the business school at Penn, than uh, we have from the medical school. It's a bigger school, of course, but we actually had to limit it to uh, MBA students at Wharton because the demand was so great. Yeah, well, they can use it there. The, the Wharton School, where their energy is uh, slow down a little bit there. But let me <laughs> let me let me reverse the formula here with the physicians. And uh, I bumped into this myself uh, quite a lot. My wife has too. You know, Suzanne is it. Uh, psychologist, that somehow, not somehow, modern society has, has funneled trauma to very specific points. So social workers, for example, they're, they're, they're asked by definition of their job and the way society works to put themselves in, to, in relationship to trauma over and over 
and over and over again every day. Psychologists, physicians, healthcare professionals gave that one example of, of maybe an older person who's fragile underneath a robe, a little frightened about exposing herself to young people who are there to help her. This level of exposure to the healthcare professional, that is a relentless exposure every day to human beings in traumatic circumstances, is very, very powerful, as I'm sure you're quite aware. And um, I was did a little work with some people who help homeless, uh, social workers who help homeless folks. And the stories they told me, and, I, and I've had a little experience with homeless people, but, you know, seeing that twice, three times maybe, or five times, but 20 times a week or 30 times a month, that's powerful stuff. And I, I'm just curious, from your experience of working with healthcare professionals and mindfulness, how does that exposure to human suffering, to human trauma, uh, mingle in with how the practice works with, with them as professionals? I don't know that I have a simple answer to that because uh, everybody is different, but you're right. Uh, in some situations, being exposed to the trauma of others creates a kind of a vicarious trauma in mm -hmm. the person who bears witness. And, um, you know, PTSD isn't just because you've been in a, in a difficult situation, but because you've been connected to someone else who has, or you've witnessed it. Right. Uh, so vicarious trauma is a real thing. Um, but it, it's also true that the exposure to those sorts of things, which we all uh, face a risk of, that is just part of what it means to be a person, that that exposure can uh, create compassion, mm -hmm. that it can open your heart as well as close it. So, you know, when we started by talking about these stages that people who practice mindfulness go through and said that there's this period in the middle where uh, it becomes something like psychotherapy and we meet our own difficulties and sources of distress. If you've met that and learn to hold it in some kind of a larger space or to feel compassion towards yourself, my belief is, and I, I can't prove this. I, I don't know of a research about it, but my belief is that it buffers the way that we're affected by trauma because we feel connected and urged to help instead of connected and injured with the person. Like we're, right. we're there to be uh, an anchor in a very turbulent moment of their life. And our ability to do that really helps. Yeah. You know, my, my experience, you know, and I have, just like you said, I don't have any data on this at all, but the quality of it is to be able to be fully touched by someone else's suffering, but not attached to it. Mm -hmm. That your heart can absolutely break. Mm -hmm. Yet, you know, five minutes later, you're walking down the street and a dog comes up and steals your ice cream cone. You know, it's like, whoa, it's, ha it's happening in such a powerful way that you have to dance with it rather than be frozen by it. But you have to really surrender yourself to the brokenheartedness of, of being human with someone mm -hmm. who suffers so deeply. And I think when we're afraid of it, 
we actually amplify the impact of its mm -hmm. of its of itself to create a poison in a way that hurts us, you know, uh, in a bad way. I mean, you know, uh, but that's just my. I don't I don't do research. I just sort of meander around. That's kind of my experience. Yeah, I don't I don't do research anymore either. Right. Well, let me let me switch topics. We we're, we have about another fifteen minutes or so. Let me switch topics. This is a, this is an area where I, I hopefully I can frame this question well. We'll see if I can pull it off. You know, the way I came to applying mindfulness in business was I was you know way down the road. You know, I have a degree in theology, philosophy. It was way down the road studying Buddhism. I wanted to become a monk or whatever. And then, you know, at some point, my teacher told me, go get a job, dude. Why don't you do something productive? Which was a shock, shocking at the time. But over the many years, it became obviously how wise that instruction was. But the key there is that you know, I came to business as a meditator. And at the time, similar to you, Michael, you know, if I was as a meditator on Wall Street, it was, I was like a woo-woo guy, you know, like, you know, there's crystals on your forehead, man, you know. A, mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't talk about it much, frankly, when I was there when I was younger. But as you know, over time, this thing is mainstreamed and mindfulness in the workplace is, is major. But most of the voices that are interested in it are business people who came to mindfulness, not the other way around, a practitioner who came to business. And in many respects, you strike me in a similar boat. You know, your deepening of your practice was happening very deeply as a meditator, a practitioner, and then you became a physician. Correct me if I'm wrong, by the way. And I'm just curious, do you have any observations on the, on the difference between someone who comes to a profession, comes to the conventional world and masters the conventional world as a meditator versus someone who has mastered a conventional skill coming toward learning meditation? Boy, that is a great question. Not to say that too often, but it really is. Um, I do think that on the average, there's probably a little bit of difference and also a lot of overlap. I mean, I too was a, had meditated, wow, I don't know, for 15 or 20 years before I went to medical school. And I always knew um, that I wanted to teach meditation or to work with it somehow uh, from when I was a kid. Uh, and I started practicing meditation when I was a kid. But um, the, the motivation that I had wasn't so much to create a program or to do uh, it as an activity, but was really my own spiritual path, sort of the path that, that led me towards myself and a deepening of my experience of my life and the world. And so I think that I have a different orientation than someone who is, uh, you know, in business, like say, you know, in a, a, a company or the army or, um, you know, some industry and who says, you know, this ability that I've learned, this would be really helpful here. Uh, and they tend to focus more on the mechanics of it, 
Like, do you have a curriculum that I could provide? Do you, is, could you make right. it concrete for us? And it, I think that it does lose something, but I shouldn't be too harsh with that because I've seen, you know, we've trained so many tens of thousands of people, as you said, um, you know, based on kind of a, a, a pretty standardized uh, eight week curriculum and almost all of them, almost all of them say that it wasn't just helpful, but say that it really changed their life. So I think that in the end, although people start from really different places, I think that we're all headed in the same direction and we're all using the same road. So yeah. it's kind of, a, I'm equivocating a little bit. Yeah, maybe, but maybe not uh, because bo they're both true. Yeah, I, th there's no doubt. And I've just enjoyed the conversation and, and being in the area I've been in, mm -hmm. the little slice that I involved myself in. I've really enjoyed the conversation and watched the field grow. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it's just shocking to me when I started in, I guess, 1998 or something. I forget when I started, you know, you know, teaching mindfulness in workplace settings. So I'm very passionate about and very supportive of, of the secular approach. So it's not that. It's just curious, like, I'll give you an example from me and then I'll throw you my last softball before we end the conversation. <laughs> Uh, you know, one of the things that I've really highlighted in, in, in my work is often people who are coming to meditation from a secular or a conventional point of view are seeking to better themselves, mm -hmm. to become a better version of themselves is how I put it. And to some degree, that's very admirable. You know, I, I don't put it down, but I, but I work real hard to consistently communicate that that's not what the practice is about. It's not about becoming a better version of yourself, nor is it about collecting evidence to demonstrate that's the case. That the practice is about becoming utterly familiar with your experience, to become utterly familiar with who you are. And in the process, you might notice that you're expressing qualities that you've overlooked, you know? And that, that tiny distinction which may appear uh, unimportant from a certain point of view is critical. And I would only have known that if I had been trained for so long, I wouldn't have known that. And those little nuances, I can see them in the way you conduct yourself, Michael, and I can see them in your program. You know, uh, you may not be as explicit about them, but it's the tone that you bring to it. And uh, I, don't, I don't count that as minor. I think it's a distinctive part of this applied mindfulness approach from, to be candid, from a Buddhist approach. You know? mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, that was, that was uh, I think it's an important distinction and uh, I, I think it's helpful. It's probably the most important distinction. Uh, I really agree with that, that we're not trying to become a better version of ourselves. That's actually the opposite of what we're trying to do. We're trying to become an authentic version of ourselves, like to actually embody what we already are. And then when that happens, you realize that uh, you don't need to be different, that <laughs> it's perfect just the way that it is, that it's exactly as it should be. And, and there's a kind of a, 
a self-acceptance that's uh, at the core of the, the growth that happens. There's a paradox here, sure. By letting go of trying to change, what happens is that you're transformed. But, yeah. but what you've let go of uh, is the struggle <laughs> to make it different. And yeah. it, it's really hard to wrap your head around that. And just think about meditation practice. I've hardly ever had anyone come to our program who said that they knew how to meditate or who, who said that their meditation practice was okay as it is. They all think that they're doing it wrong. Yeah, right. <laughs> they're not doing it wrong. Like Almost impossible. <laughs> right. Their mind moves because they're still alive, because they yeah, have right. a mind, and that's yeah. what it does. Yeah. It, you know, just like your heart, it keeps moving. You're hoping it doesn't stop. Uh, but it sure takes a long time to come to see that you can be still with, and you can be balanced within all of that movement, yeah. uh, that you don't have to go somewhere else. You know, uh, you brought up, you used the word authentic several times here. It's an area of great interest with me in terms of what I'm working on. And I won't go into it too much because we only have a few more minutes left. Uh, the whole general field of what I've referred to as the authentic colleague is that there's a shift occurring in global business workplaces away from the leader and toward the colleague. There's a whole wide range of reasons, not the least of which is the speed of adapting with agile teams, self-improvement teams, uh, and, a, and a wide variety of other dynamics, including hybrid teams, social intelligence skills are becoming foremost, not leadership skills, not that social intelligence skills are a subset of leadership. But the, the issue there uh, of, of having an authentic colleague that you can trust, that you can rely on, that you can have a conflict with, that can be resolved in such a way that promotes each other's dignity. You know, these kinds of skills are really more and more sought after. And uh, the, one, the one way I, I frame this uh, as critical is the distinction, well, I'll put it as the title of my course, is, is authentic colleague um, uh, in an increasingly artificial world that this artificiality of, of you know, everything from having 586 channels in your TV to this, uh, this new happy talk about the metaverse, where we're inclining toward artificial experiences that we can't really distinguish from a, from a real, quote, real experience as a way to constantly chase after preferred experiences rather than the one you're having. That artificiality is, is very dangerous, in my opinion. And that the authentic presence of just being who you are, where you are completely, is, is, is particularly in the workplace, but generally in society, modern materialistic society, is, is either explicitly or implicitly more and more valued. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, enough of my speech. Uh, I, I'm speaking the same tongue. I mean, I'm with you there. And that phrase that you used, authentic presence, is one that I use all the time. Oh. It comes from uh, our first Buddhist teacher, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. And um, I think that it's an essential component of leadership. And when I, 
when I talk about leadership, I talk about that. It's also an essential component of a relationship that works. Uh, it's an essential component for having a life that's full and and rich and able to make a difference in the world. So it's a, a great place to end and and a really important thing to remember, maybe a good place to start too. Yeah, well, let me, you're not getting off that easy. I got one more question for you. One more final question, which is this. There's a lot of people, young people particularly, but doesn't matter what age you are, but people who are new or coming into this path of, you know, I think meditation is something I want to make part of my life. I want to explore it. I want to get to know it. I want to maybe bring it into my relationships, my work, my profession. So you've been doing this for a long time. What three pieces of advice do you have for these people who would like to make, who are curious and interested in potentially making this practice part of their life? I'll only give one piece of advice, but it's the most important piece, and so I'm not cheating. Um, to really have an authentic presence that lets you make authentic contact with people who come to you to learn about meditation requires that you have made your practice and that path the center of your life. So if you're just adopting it as a, a quick, um, you know, intervention for uh, some specific situation, uh, it might be effective and it might be helpful, but it won't be profound. And uh, I think we should be aiming for the sky. Uh, we, we should really uh, look to not simply give people a way to uh, let go of the burden for a moment, but to actually change themselves deeply in a way that could and should change the course of their whole life. And so it's a, it's a tall order, it's a lot of work, but uh, it's worth it. That's good. Well, I guess I, I guess I have to let you off and not ask for the other two, because I can tell you're not gonna give them to me anyway, so why ask? Right. <laughs> so any final remarks or insights you wanna share with us before we close? Uh, no, because uh, all of the things that I said and that you said, the discussion that we had is really just like pointing at something else, like, you know, pointing at the moon in the sky. And uh, you actually have to uh, go to the place that we're talking about and live there long enough to really feel it and let it saturate uh, your body and your mind and your heart. Um, so, uh, you know, I hope that people who have listened, um, you know, that, that someone gets inspired to make that happen for themselves, because it is for me personally, the most satisfying and meaningful thing that I've been able to do in this life. Well, thank you, Michael. Uh, thank you for giving me your time and, uh, to our audience, you know, I strongly encourage you to reach out to Michael's website. You can just Google Michael Bain at University of Pennsylvania. He's great staff. Uh, I mean, I've gotten to work with several of them uh, with that education program we did up there in Bucks mm -hmm. County. Got to know several people. And these are good, well-trained people, great programs. So 
I invite people and encourage people to reach out and, and uh, get to know your world, Michael. So thank you. And thank you for the work that you're doing to um, make this real for so many people. Right. All right. Well, hope to see you again soon, my friend. Likewise. <laughs> thank you. Bye-bye. Mindful Voices is brought to you by Applied Mindfulness Training, a nonprofit devoted to helping you make the most of your human resources. Visit AppliedMindfulnessTraining.org to find free guided meditations, explore our publications and blog posts on mindfulness topics, and learn about our customized trainings to help you and your organization discover how to work with your mind. Let us know what you thought of the show. Email us at mindfulvoices at AppliedMindfulnessTraining.org. You can also connect with us on Twitter at AppliedMindTR or on Instagram or Facebook at AppliedMindfulnessTraining. Thanks again for tuning in. We hope you'll join us again soon.